Hi, everybody. Thank you all again for being here. Uh, this is a very, this is a session which I have been looking uh, uh, a long time before. And uh, for those who know already, uh, the person in front of me, uh, Dr. Bob Branson, has been my guest like for like five months ago, which was a very fruitful conversation, which I'm so glad that I've done it. Um, uh, we were talking about the Trinitarian philosophy and how logic and, and, and particular analogies would fit together. But we didn't go into the depths of the biblical teachings, mainly the monarch of the father, which will be the, the point of discussion uh, of this session. And Dr. Bo Branson has like opened a lot of doors for me personally. Uh, I've got to be able to, to talk, for instance, to... Um, uh, Dr. Dave Bratch on essence energies distinction. I got to be able to, to have a discussion with Jay Dyer, Sam Schoon, et cetera. So ever since from that particular session, doors have been opening, of course, by the grace of God. And um, we're going to talk today about, yeah, one of the most undeniable doctrines of the Bible from beginning to end. But before we do, I first wanted to ask you, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh... I don't know. I don't know if there's much to update on since the last time we talked, but kind of same old. Yeah, we're creatures surviving. of repetition. Sorry? <laughs> we're creatures of repetition. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, of course, with the whole everything in Ukraine today is kind of, right. I think, weighing on everyone's uh, minds right now, but uh, praying and hoping for an end to it soon. So. Amen. Amen. Uh, as a minute ago, we were praying and we were really feeling that the world was eager for the coming of our Lord. Like there is already so much turmoil and will be. And knowing that the Christians and even non-Christians, of course, all the way throughout the world that are suffering right now. First of all, of course, that uh, let this session be a dedication to them for even Orthodox, a lot of Orthodox Ukrainians over there, but also those mm -hmm. who are, yeah, the sheep of our Lord. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, yeah, it cannot be something that like, like, like last year, there was the war in Armenia. It was a very difficult thing to see when uh, the Western world was like glancing over, like nothing happened. And uh, may the Lord help us that we may not become hypocrites. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's uh, interesting. Uh, that's a very important point. So I would say, like, um, as you know, I've sent you a couple of questions in advance. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about the monarchy of the father. And uh, as, a, as a starting question, uh, first off, what is the monarchy of the father for the Christian layman? So um, I guess for those who haven't heard the term before, um, so the word archi in Greek uh, you know, literally we can translate it like a beginning, uh, but that can have a few different connotations. So, you know, in one sense, it can be a chronological beginning, like in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth is in our key. Um, but it can also just be uh, a beginning in a more metaphysical sort of sense of like the source of something, the, the root of something is a beginning. So like the, you know, the, uh, the beginning of a road uh, doesn't, it's not the beginning in time, right? Or 
sometimes you might think of like the first principles uh, in a in a science or something, or sometimes called the archi or archae. So the monarchy of the father uh, is the idea that the father is the the root or the source uh, or principle of the son and the spirit. Um, so sometimes the church fathers use that kind of language or that kind of analogy. They'll call him the the fountain uh, or the root or the source. Um, and the reason why it's important, one there's a lot of reasons, but one reason is that in uh, in the first several centuries of, well, not just the first several centuries of Christianity, um, uh, really throughout the history of Christianity and until fairly recently. Um, so you have to keep in mind there, there was no word in Greek for monotheism. A lot of times people today talk about whether the doctrine of the Trinity is compatible with monotheism. And the word monotheism actually has only been uh, around for a few hundred years. Um, in, in English, it's been around since I think, uh, I forget the exact date, but I think sometime in the 1600s, I think it was uh, Moore maybe who, who coined the term. And uh, I've found a use of it in uh, the debates between Gregory Palamas and, and Barlam actually in, in Greek. Um, but that's the 13th century or so. So that's, um, or the 14th, am I getting that wrong? But anyway, that, that's still fairly recent in the, uh, the, the context of the Greek language. So before that, and of course, Greeks always had the word polytheism, uh, but the contrasting term uh, that they would use was not monotheism, but monarchia. So they would say, we believe that we don't believe in polytheism, we believe in monarchia. And so uh, uh, it's, it's interesting, it's an interesting point, because if you, uh, if you think about whether the doctrine of the Trinity is monotheistic, um, and you go back to before the Council of Nicaea, um, no one was saying, oh, well, you know, uh, it's really difficult or hard to explain, or, you know, something like that. They would, they would just say, yeah, we believe in monarchia. Um, and so if you say, well, the father is the monarchy, is this the one source, right? You, you understand that like kind of that, that was the idea uh, of, uh, of kind of early Christian monotheism is just kind of that there's a single first principle, right? There's a single first thing at the top, and that is the father. Uh, and so it's uh, something I've argued is that it's, it's kind of not surprising uh, when you find that in the Bible, um, there's this kind of focus on God the Father, and he's referred to more often as God. Um, sometimes Jesus is referred to as God, and, and maybe the Holy Spirit is referred to as God, but it's predominantly the Father. And so a lot of Unitarians have said, well, look, see, that shows that uh, early Christians really didn't think that Jesus was divine, or that the Holy Spirit was divine. And they just, you know, they were these Unitarians. And uh, uh, once you understand the monarchy of the father, you understand, well, there's a reason why they would tend to just call the father God, but that doesn't exclude, uh, the idea that the son and Holy spirit are also, uh, divine and that they are in some sense, one with God, the father, uh, even though they're, you know, 
three distinct persons. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of the uh, that's maybe more than you were asking for. But the but the no, root perfect. he is kind of just one first principle, right? Um, and it's uh, it, it's a doctrine that people don't talk about as much today uh, because uh, even though it was affirmed by everyone uh, uh, in the ancient church all through the Middle Ages um, up into the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and it's it's only really been fairly recently that that people um, in kind of a certain um, uh, certain circles within within kind of mostly kind of evangelical Protestantism that they've decided that that's that's not okay they 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 want a more sort of egalitarian trinity, um, which uh, uh, I mean. You know, in, in principle, um, maybe you you might not think is a is a bad thing or something, but I think it's it's made it sort of easy for um, for Unitarians to criticize their view because they they kind of end up formulating things in a way that's not very biblical, and it kind of raises the question like. Well, if you have to formulate your doctrine in language that's not really biblical, like is the idea really biblical? So one thing that I've tried to kind of argue is that, well, there's a there's another way of thinking about the Trinity. It's actually the older and more uh, orthodox view of the Trinity. And um, uh, it's fairly easy to formulate that sort of view in language that's perfectly consistent with the Bible. So, um, so anyway, that's that's a maybe like us, maybe more than you were asking. No, that, no, that, was a, that was a great answer. That was a great answer. And everybody who has, has read the Bible for just a bit already knows what that's alluding to. Mm-hmm. And so nobody, nobody in the right mind negates the fact that the God is not the father, which we, every one of us, even, even heretics agree with that. But coming to um, the, the contrast between early, early Christianity and today's Christian, particularly in, in the West, we got like this this document from the forgotten trinity of james white which yeah. is not there's nothing of monarchy of the father in and of itself anywhere uh, yeah. which which is like a more augustinian egalitarian um mm-hmm. the w- way of putting the doctrine into into the formulation and there we have the monarchy of the father but then we uh, for the past couple of years ever since like a couple of philosophers came together they created something called the LPT, the logical problem of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And my ne- my next question is, is how does the monarchy of the father actually negate the logical problem of the Trinity? Right. So, um, yeah, so Richard Cartwright uh, is a philosopher that wrote a, or I guess he gave a talk and turned it into a paper about the, the logical problem of the Trinity back in the 80s. And since then, there's been a lot more written about it. Interestingly, there's been a lot written by analytic philosophers of, of religion, uh, but uh, it's actually, I don't think I have the book here with me, but Bill Hasker, William Hasker, uh, was the first person to actually, the first philosopher to actually write like a book length treatment uh, of the, the Trinity. Um, and I don't know if anyone has written uh, one since then yet, actually. Um, there's a few people who have done some historical things, but not really sort of constructive um, responses to it. So, 
But anyway, as far as uh, the, so what the logical problem of the Trinity is, is Cartwright basically um, took some sentences out of the Athanasian Creed, uh, which I can talk about why I think the Athanasian Creed is kind of problematic to, to use as a starting point. But, uh, but he took them out of the Athanasian Creed, and it's just basically, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, uh, and yet there's one God and not three gods, right? So he just kind of took those seven sentences, um, last one being there's exactly one God is the way he put it. And he just sort of said, you know, look, uh, it looks like this is a logical contradiction. Uh, there's a couple different ways, you know, you could try to interpret these statements, uh, but either, you know, wh whichever way you interpret them, they seem like they end up being a contradiction. Um, <clears throat> so I, my dissertation responded to that, and my dissertation had nothing to do with the monarchy of the father, actually. And I, I never even, uh, at that point, I hadn't really even thought about it. Um, uh, and it was... Uh, my dissertation kind of focused on Gregory of Nyssa's response to this in terms of uh, thinking about what the word God really means when we, when we use it as a predicate in the way that it's used in that set of statements. Um, and of course, Gregory of Nyssa thinks that the word God doesn't really mean that a thing has the divine nature, but he thinks there's a particular energy that uh, that you're ascribing to a thing when you when you say that it's theos, it's God, um, and he so he argued that because of what what we would call the doctrine of inseparable operations, or in Greek theology, a lot of times it's just called synergy. Um, so there's only a single energy or a single activity um, that's shared by the the persons, and so I kind of got into the metaphysics of all of that and why he says so that means they kind of count as just one god the um the reason that i i find i eventually i wrote a, a little paper and i did a, a presentation online about uh, the monarchy of the father uh was more to respond to to dale tuggy who's a philosopher who has written a lot about the trinity um yeah, and what i what i realized <laughs> sorry he has written a lot indeed <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you gotta, you gotta hand it to him. He's, he's persistent. He's, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting, actually. I think almost everything that he's published has been on the Trinity. I think there's, I found like one, one, one paper maybe that he did on, uh, not Samuel Clark. Who is it? The uh, Thomas Reed, I think. Um, but anyway, I what I what I realized, um, I. I mentioned him a lot in, in the dissertation, um, uh, mostly thinking about this logical problem of the Trinity. And there was only one passage where I was looking at kind of a certain way that he had formulated things in one of his papers. And I just sort of said, well, this is a, a bad way to formulate the, the problem. It's, it's confused and whatever. Uh, and so I just have a little like a footnote um, explaining like why it didn't make sense, because if you formulate it this way, uh, I said you could just say, you know, that the father equals God and uh, and the whole thing would kind of, you know, work out <laughs> just fine. And there's no problem. And, I, and at the time, it didn't occur to me that that actually was his 
that, that, that was his concern. I thought he just kind of was confused and didn't, you know, just kind of formulated things in a weird way. And it was only much later that I realized like that actually is what, what motivates a lot of Unitarians and Dale, Dale Tuggy in particular. Um, so the, the, the way I think of it is he, he really has two arguments uh, going on. I don't, I'm not quite sure yet if if even he has realized this yet or not but but they're really two entirely logically distinct arguments because uh there are just in terms of um you know proving the logical consistency of different sets of propositions and so forth there are ways you could solve one problem that wouldn't solve the other and vice versa so they they turn out to be logically independent issues and so uh, one is the, the logical problem of Trinity, which is really, I, I kind of abbreviate that, like the tritheism objection, right? Like, are there really three gods or is it one God? So that was what my whole dissertation was about. The other one is this kind of reference problem, or sometimes I just call it the who is God problem. Right. So, and the difference, the, the way to think about the difference is this, that we use the word God in two different sense or two different there, there's two different not just senses but ways of using it in a sentence just grammatically so sometimes it's the subject of a sentence and sometimes it's a predicate um and, and not a predicate in in the way that like you know samuel clemens is mark twain well then mark twain is the predicate but but like samuel clemens uh oh, I don't know, let's say is blue-eyed or something. Um, that's a quality, right? That's, that's a quality you're ascribing to him. Right. So uh, sometimes we use the word God as a subject. So we're, we're referring to something, right? We're using it as a subject term. So you say God is good. Well, then God is this subject and you're ascribing a quality to it. But um and sometimes people just think of the word God like it's just, it's only like a name. And if you treat it like it's just always a name, well, you say the father is God and the son is God, but the father's not the son, then that is a contradiction, right? right. Um, well, Gregory of Nyssa says that that's not, uh, that's not how it works. It's you're, you're ascribing this activity to this thing, right? And, and think about it this way. I mean, the fact that you can call something a God right? You can't call something a uh, Mark Twain. Like you're either Mark Twain, right? You can't, that's not a quality, right? But you can say like, uh, you can talk about the gods of the Gentiles or, you know, Baal is your God, um, our God, right? You, you can't, you can't do that when it's just like a name. So anyway, um, uh, and, and Gregory of Nyssa says what you're saying is that the thing has this certain kind of activity that it performs. Um, he's also very clear, by the way, um, Gregory of Nyssa is, is very clear that he does think that um, in some sense there are other gods. So um, not, not the, um, I mean, in, in, the, in the sense in which people like um, uh, Michael Heiser 
you know, is famous for talking about this sort of thing. And uh, Father Stephen DeYoung, if you hear the Lord of Spirits podcast, right. um, yeah. they talk about this sort of thing. That in the Old Testament and in, in, you know, late Second Temple Jewish literature, like they're not really shy about talking about the gods. There's, of course, there's, and this gets back to the monarchia thing, right? So like sometimes when people hear that, they're like, wait, what? So this is, that's polytheism, but of course, the, the difference uh, is that in, you know, in Judaism, in, in the Old Testament, there are lots of gods. God is a God of gods. I mean, it says that, right? He sits, you know, uh, God stands in the congregation of the gods and in the midst of them, he judges the gods, right? So it's right. all over the place that there are these other gods. But the difference is that there's one God at the top, right? So there's one, there's monarchia, right? There's not a... a plurality of a bunch of random different gods and where did they all come from or have they always been there so it's just kind of chaos right there's there's the one uncreated god and then there are all these created you know basically what we would call angels today but in the old testament a lot of times they just called them gods or demons or whatever but anyway gregory is on board with that i mean he says it's not just a joke when the bible is calling things gods um but the there's a difference between uh uh, whether something has that divine energy uh essentially or uh just accidentally or by participation or um you know so on and so forth so anyway, uh, one issue is w- when we're using the word God like a predicate like that, like it's just ascribing a quality to a thing, then the question is, well, then does the Trinity give you three gods? Um, and even if you say, well, there's other gods in some sense anyway, um, the question is kind of, um, uh, well, do the, are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three of them? <laughs> Right? Are there th- are they three gods? Because they shouldn't be three gods. Or they should just turn out to be one god. The the a completely different issue is if you use the word god not like a predicate but like a subject, right? Mm-hmm. So then, who is it referring to? Um, and if you say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all qualitatively God, they're all divine, then. When you say, you know, God is good or God said this or did that, you know, who are you talking about? Um, But that's a a different issue, right? So it's a different um, uh, question. And and what Dale's wanted to say, um, essentially their argument is just you read through the New Testament and it's very clear that it uses the word God when it's using the word God like a name, it's typically referring to the father and he'll admit by the way some i think some people have gotten the wrong impression that i don't think you can use the word god to refer to the son or the spirit or something like that or the trinity which i don't think that and even he doesn't think that (laughs) so um uh so you you certainly can't and i would argue this is a different topic but i would argue in the old testament it's a very different story so i think that in the old testament uh Jesus is being called God all the time, um, uh, yeah. which is a whole other, uh, whole other uh, no, bag of worms. But we, we, we can no, we, we can we can open a can of worms, so no uh, problem. <laughs> but but in it's true though that in the New Testament, typically um, 
for whatever reason, people in the New Testament start, they, they do this thing where nine times out of 10, the word God, if you're using it like a name or like a subject, it's referring to the Father. And typically Lord, which is how you would normally translate Yahweh from the Old Testament, they use for Jesus, right? Um, that second half, Dale doesn't talk about <laughs> as much. And he doesn't, uh, I think he doesn't, he, he wouldn't agree with that maybe. But anyway. Now, I, uh, I, I watched, by the way, his, uh, his debate with uh, Anthony Rogers. They were talking about, yeah. does Mark affirm the deity of Christ? And it's like, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. like, you know, like the very first line of Mark, that, that Christ was the son of God, etc. And right there, he, he's appealing to Isaiah 40 verse 30. What, what is the, the word right there? Yahweh, like the tetragrammaton for Lord. Yeah. And he's applying that to Jesus. What is Jesus? Yeah, he's just Lord, but not God. Like, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I saw that debate. Um, and it, um, it was entertaining. I, to, to be fair, I, I think, um, I've, I've seen a handful of debates with Dale in it. And I, I, in a lot of them, I think Dale wins the debate in terms of just the debate, but I, I thought that one, he didn't, he didn't do <laughs> so well. Yeah. But, um, and, but anyway, um, and, and it is a point that, yeah, I think, I think that um, Unitarians don't, uh, I know, I know what their view is. I mean, they, they're just going to say, well, the word Lord can be used to just mean sir or whatever. My, my issue with that is um, in the Old Testament, if you look statistically at the distribution of, of uses of Elohim versus Yahweh, it's something like, uh, I want to say in the neighborhood of like 2000 or something uses of Elohim and something like six or 7,000 uses of Yahweh. So by far, the preferred word to use is Yahweh. Um, and then you go into the New Testament, and there's not that much difference between the distributions. It's something like right. 200 or something of, uh, of Theos, which is how the Septuagint translates Elohim, right? And there's like I don't know, six or seven hundred or something of seven hundred and seventy-one. Oh, curious, which, which seventy-five percent yeah. goes to our Lord Jesus. Yeah, right. Know. So you can see there, right, that it's it, it's it, yes, yeah, this thing where statistically Theos tends to be the father and Kyrios tends to be the son. Uh, and and my issue is if you go in and take all of those references to the son as Kyrios. Uh, and you interpret them all to just mean sir, right, instead of Yahweh, then this, then the distribution that you suddenly get in the New Testament is they're always calling God, God instead of Lord. Uh, and they barely ever be, there's a handful of times when the father gets called Lord in a prayer or something like that. Lord, actually, I don't even know if he ever gets called just the Lord. Um, it's like Lord of heaven or Lord of earth, but there's a, there's a handful, but it's the same sort of thing is right. There's a handful of times when Jesus is called God. Um, so there's a handful of times the father's called the Lord, but it would be just weird to think, okay, in the Old Testament, then people are just always, there's just this one Unitarian God, and people are always calling him Yahweh, and then some of the times they call him Elohim. But then in the New Testament, you just suddenly get this shift to, 
they're always calling him Theos, which is the equivalent of Elohim. And they just stopped. They just forgot about the word Yahweh or Kyrios. Like, where did, where did Yahweh go? Like, I, I call this the vanishing Yahweh problem. Like, what, like, where did, you know, like, where, where did that, where did it go? And that's, you know, that's in the spirit of kind of, of, of how Dale argues too, because he thinks about, you know, what's the statistical distribution of these terms. And so I would just say, well, if that's, you look at the statistics, right? I mean, it, it, we should expect that the New Testament authors would be using the word curios, like, like more often, I mean, certainly, yeah. you know, two or three times more often than they use theos to refer to God. And that's not what, what happens. They're always referring to Jesus as curios. So, um, but anyway, but, but that's kind of the argument, right? Is, is there, it's when, when you're using the word God as a subject term. And so his argument is basically, uh, well, in the new Testament, it's, it's used to refer to the father most of the time. So, uh, that wouldn't make sense on a Trinitarian picture. Right. Um, and what I realize is the, the reason that he thinks that is because he just kind of assumes a, an egalitarian view of the Trinity that's become popular in evangelical circles in the last 50 to 100 years or something. Um, uh, and so he just thinks that there'd be absolutely no reason why uh, the New Testament would, or early Christians, let's say, too, would, you know, would tend to refer to the Father as God and uh, only here and there maybe call Jesus God. But primarily they use the word God to mean the Father. And there'd just be no explanation for that. And what I basically have said is uh, there's an obvious explanation, which is the, the monarchy, uh, the monarchy of the Father. Right. Um, yeah, I just just wanted to 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 ask you a bit more about um, the word Lord and the word God, which are which the word God is used and nominatively to to the Father and predictively predictively to to the Son and the Spirit. Well, I, I would. I mean, let me clarify that because some sure. people I think have gotten this idea. Like I, I just think it would be wrong to ever use the word God to refer to the Son or spirits um even as a name but and and that's not the the case at all what what i've done i mean all i've really done is talked about what various church fathers say right so uh one of the things that saint basil and saint athanasius and multiple of the church fathers have said is is they've said look you can um uh, you can totally apply a name to the representation of something, right? So um, Basil uses this example, like uh, we, if you have an image of the king or the emperor, he says, you know, uh, you would point to it and say, that's the emperor, right? That was exactly uh, what I wanted to, uh, to ask yeah, you. Yeah. Like, th th that was a great point. You just, uh, you immediately caught on what which I was alluding to. Like, for instance, when we see Jesus, uh, I personally and a lot of Christians hopefully also say that's God right there. Yeah. But yeah. then when, when the father's in a picture, he is God and he is Lord. But it's still like, for yeah. instance, when I have like a picture of, of, of my wife, I don't have a wife, just, just, just yeah. for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is, this is my wife. 
But then yeah. when my wife comes in, it's a picture of her, but that's my actual wife. Yeah. Like in, in yeah. a particular sense. So it's Jesus yeah, no is God. Thinks, but, but, like, but, no, but, no one but, would say you're lying if you point to the picture of your wife and say, that's my wife. Right. No one would be like, that's not true. Or if you're, then your wife walks in the door and you're like, hey, that's my wife too. Like no one would be like, you're a bigamist. You've got two wives, you know, um, right? Because one is a representation of the other. And that's the view that you get. Uh, I mean, I, I would say, well, it, it explicitly in the New Testament, right? Christ is the icon of the invisible God. Like that's what it says. Uh, and that's the the view that you get in people like St. Basil and St. Athanasius and others that, you know, uh, and that's what Gregory Nazianzen says about, um, he says, because of the shared divine nature. Right. Um, Nazianzen. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Yeah. There's a, I, I love that book because at the, there's a point towards the end where he goes on at length for like, 20 pages or something. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just yeah, started yeah. with it. Okay. Good, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, he, he's uh, quite insistent that central to, to Gregory Nazianzen's view about the Trinity is the monarchy of the father. Um, and it, it's interesting too. He points out Chris Beely, the author of that book. Uh, I think he's, it's very interesting. I mean, he just kind of lays it out there and he says, um, you know, it's like it's not it's not that it's not clear in the text of Gregory Nazianz and he's like, it's just that we're uncomfortable with um, like people today are just uncomfortable with the theology of the Nicene and and post Nicene pro Nicene fathers. Um, and I think he's right. I think it's just, you know, people have have worked themselves into this egalitarian sort of mindset or whatever. Right. Uh, and then when they go back and actually read the text, it's just jarring to them. And, and it, in, it encourages them to try to find some way to interpret them so that they're not saying what they actually explicitly <laughs> say. <laughs> um, anyway, I like his, I like his book on that. His take. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was, um, my next question is uh, how are the son and the Holy Spirit grounded in the father? Like, like last, last session, we, yeah. we talked about uh, aseity and uh, you said that aseity oh. is not an intrinsic, uh, uh, what's the word for it again? Property. Property. Thank you. Yeah. And, but, but, but then the, the thing is like, Oh, Jesus is not, has no aseity, but like, is it true that we, as uh, those who affirm the monarchy of the Father, we, of course, we believe that, that God the Father is like the autotheos, or like an Aristotelian sense, is like the unmoved mover in that sense, mm -hmm. but that from him uh, came the mm -hmm. Son and the Spirit? Like, for instance, in uh, first eight, first Corinthians 8, verse 6, for there is one God the Father from whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus mm -hmm. Christ through whom are all things. Yeah. So... Uh, one of the objections of Dale, for instance, was like, the, how, how are you trying to talk them away? Like, you still have like those two extra persons. It does not make uh, trends. So like uh, Joshua Sejuati, which you have, which you had uh, several conversations with. Yes, like this, uh, this, this yeah. theme of grounding. I should ask the question to himself, to him, of course. But what, what are your thoughts if you hear uh, these yeah, propositions? I, I, think, I think he's done a good job. Uh, there's, there's 
some things I don't agree with him about. Uh, but, but I think that's not a bad uh, way to kind of explain uh, the monarchy of the father. Um, I think some people might not, um, if you're not into the literature in metaphysics on grounding and all that, it might sound uh, like something it's not. But the, the idea of grounding is basically, um, so th there, there are all kinds of issues where th there's a certain kind of metaphysical relation that people have tried to reduce to all kinds of other things and it just never works. Uh, and so people finally just kind of came up with this word grounding to talk about whatever this relation is that we can't figure out what it is, um, but it's clear that it's there. So, so think about like, um, uh, like, you know, most people would hold that um, beauty, which is an aesthetic quality is grounded in uh, just all kinds of mundane properties dealing with size and shape and color and, and so forth. So it's grounded in all these physical properties, whatever. Um, but it's probably not really reducible to those. Um, um, for example, uh, you know, the Stoics famously, like they tried to, tried to reduce beauty to symmetry and, and Plotinus argued like, well, you can have a beautiful uh, just a color and there's no symmetry in color. You can have a beautiful sound. There's no symmetry there. You could, someone could have a beautiful life. Uh, and there's no, it's not like symmetrical. Like they turned into a baby before they died. There's, there's no symmetry. There's all kinds of ways things can be beautiful about us. So beauty is, is something and it's hard to say why, and it's not something where you could define it in terms of, of shapes and colors or whatever. But if you, if you had two exact duplicates of the same painting or the same sculpture or whatever, physical duplicates, then if one was beautiful, the other one would be too. People have, have tried to explain what that relation is between like physical properties and aesthetic properties or physical properties and moral properties or all kinds of uh, relations like this. Um, They've, they've tried to say, well, you know, maybe it's just that necessarily if you've got these physical properties, then you've got beauty. Um, but the problem is there's things where clearly it works both ways, like um, one thing is true, then the other is true. But if this is true, then this one's true, too. But they can't both ground each other. Um, right. So people have started talking about just grounding, just uh, one thing is true in virtue of another thing. So one, one thing that to note about that is there's not going to be any gap in time. It's not causation in the, um, I, I don't mind using the word causation uh, myself, but, but a lot of times people feel like causation implies uh that one thing exists first and then a second later, this other thing exists. Of course, that wouldn't be true, right? It wouldn't be that yeah. you yeah. have it, it, some it, physical properties and it causes you to be beautiful a second later. Right. Did I remember that you one time said that uh, causation is not necessarily uh, diachronic, it's synchronic. Mm -hmm. So it depends on how you look, how you look at causation by virtue of time. Yeah. And I don't really... 
agree with, I know everyone believes this, but I don't really uh, agree that, that just standard causation takes time. Um, so anyway, I'm a weird guy though. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I think of causation as happening at, at a moment of time anyway, but, but most people think of causation as, yeah, as diachronic. And so grounding would not be that. Um, so, I mean, so a good, an example here might be something like, um, um, yeah, you know, the relation between fire and like the light and the heat that it produces. So, um, you, if you think about it, like you don't really have, you can't have a fire existing for a second or two. And then a minute later, the fire, the light and the heat come out, right? Like as soon as it's, as soon as this chemical reaction, like is such that it would count as fire, then it is releasing light and heat because if it's not releasing the light and heat from these electrons that are, you know, breaking bonds or whatever is happening, you know, then it, it's not really fire yet. Right. So, uh, releasing light and heat is essential to fire. Uh, and also, of course, you can't have, um, at least you can't have the kind of light and heat that we're talking about without a fire. Right. So, <clears throat> There's an example of, um, I mean, I, I, again, I feel fine calling that causation, um, <clears throat> but call it what you will. Um, it, you know, you can't have the fire without the light and the heat, and you can't get the light and the heat without the fire. So <clears throat> there's, no, there's no sense uh, in which, you know, one can exist without the other. And they're, they're clearly, in some sense, one phenomenon. But it also seems like there's a sense in which the light and the heat are grounded in the fire, right? Like the fire is the source of the light and the heat. Uh, and so that's kind of a, a good analogy, I think, for the, the, uh, the idea of the monarchia and the way that the son and spirit are grounded in the father. And that's a, actually a, an analogy that some of the church fathers use. They use the analogy of the sun and the light and the heat that come out of the sun. Um, now there were sometimes there were modalists and other people who've used that and they've used different aspects of that analogy for heretical purposes, right? But it depends on what the, the aspect is. So, I mean, you know, one aspect of the light and the heat from the sun is that light and heat are not suns. <laughs> so that, you know, they kind of have a different nature in some sense. Um, but that's not the, part of the analogy that we're, that, that we're affirming, right? Um, another thing is, you know, there's only really one concrete thing there, which is the sun, uh, and the light and the heat are just kind of activities uh, of the sun, and so modalists use that sometimes, but again, that's not the part of the analogy that the fathers would affirm. The, the part of it, the aspect of it that they would affirm is just that uh, all three kind of come together. They exist at the same time, right? But there's still a kind of uh, some sense of order or priority, not, not chronological right. and not even logical, really, in the sense that you, you, know, you can't have one exist. One can't possibly exist without the other. But um, there's a sense in which there's just this one ground, right? 
Yeah, great, man. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great uh, explication of grounding. Um, another objection. Mm-hmm. Okay, like the, the monarchy, fair enough, but isn't that subordinationism? Like, shouldn't we all listen to God the Father, etc.? Like, like they're trying to downplay the Son and the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But what would you apply reply to that particular objection? To the charge of subordinationism, right? Yeah, um, I I just feel like subordinationism is a made up word that people came up with in the uh, whatever. Well, I think that was the 1600s or so too. That um, that it. it that never, um, that was never the issue in the fourth century. Um, no one ever said, oh, you know, the Aryans are subordinationists and that's the big problem. Um, uh, at, at some point in the early modern period that became the word to use to, uh, as a, I don't know, a boogeyman or whatever, just kind of like this is subordinationism, so it's bad. And there's a whole narrative that people, there was kind of a scholarly narrative. Uh, I don't know that people, uh, scholars really buy this anymore, but there was a scholarly sort of narrative that like that was the real, that was the real motivating thing, you know, behind the doc, the development of the doctrine of the Trinity was people were trying to resist subordinationism. They didn't want to be modalists, but they didn't want to be subordinationists either but but the reality is of course you go and you read the text and no one's talking about subordinationism they're they're talking about whether the father son son and spirit are homoousius or not uh, whether they're identical whether they're all just one hypostasis or three hypostases and so forth they don't really talk about subordination so i feel like it's kind of uh it, it's a there, there's a number of these things that scholars do from time to time where I just think someone has a hard time understanding the text or something. So they come <laughs> up with a story about like, here's what it really was all about. But it, it part of that too, you, you have to remember um, to, to give a really sweeping sort of narrative of the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, like, um, in the earliest centuries, uh, Christians thought that the doctrine of the Trinity was a great advertise. Well, at least maybe it's unfair to call it the doctrine of the Trinity, but they, they thought that their views about the father and son were, uh, an advertisement for Christianity. It was so much more rational than what Jews and pagans believed. Uh, and, uh, Later, it sort of became something where even, I mean, Gregory of Nyssa thinks you can prove the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, John of Damascus thinks you can prove the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I think I think Anselm in the West still thought you could prove the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, as far as I know, it's the the first person I know of to say that you can't is Thomas Aquinas. Maybe there was someone between Anselm and Aquinas. I don't know if uh, there were any figures between there. But anyway, he starts saying you can't really prove it, but it's a it's revealed, so you still believe it, you know. Uh, and it's not. It, it, everyone seems to think the doctrine of the Trinity is fine until you get to like Occam, and he doesn't care because he's an yeah. anomalist. Well, William anyway. Occam, yeah. Yeah, and, and Occam thinks God can do contradictions and stuff anyway, and it doesn't, 
So a lot of stuff went downhill from Akhenaten. Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. And, well, and you have to realize too that I mean, after that, with the so after Occam, Luther's an Occamist. Um, all the Protestant reformers are nominalists. Um, all through Europe in the early modern period, everybody's nominalist. So if you've got this doctrine that's all formulated in terms of a shared essence, which is a universal or a, maybe not a, I mean, maybe it's a trope, but anyway, it's a it's something. It's not just a particular right of course you get i mean yeah all of those people are going to say this you can't make sense out of it because they just reject out of hand the idea that there is anything other than particulars so i mean essentially what what the early moderns if you put it in ecclesiastical terminology they think hypostases are the only things that exist there, there are no real UCI unless, unless you just by UCI you just mean a hypothesis, right? So, it, I mean, they, you know, pe- people in the modern period just they're they're anomalous. They just think there are only particulars. So the idea of a shared anything, uh, they just are going to say, well, either it's either it's nothing, uh, it's just a mental construct, or you know what I mean, whatever. Like so, they, so of course, like they they're gonna say it's crazy, and so now you've got this kind of tradition that people just think that oh well, it's it's crazy and contradictory. And then I think that people had to people who wanted to still hold on to the doctrine of the Trinity had to if they didn't want to believe in the metaphysics, if they wanted to think that the metaphysics that people were actually talking about was crazy, then you have to come up with a different story about what those arguments were all about. Like it wasn't really about this metaphysics that we all, all of us enlightened moderns know is crazy and benighted, right? It can't really be about that. It really must be about like, you know, equality, which is something that enlightenment, uh, you know, early moderns love equality and that's what it was really about was was equality which again i mean that's i think that's just something people in the early modern period made up and people still kind of believe that that's what was that was really what the debate was all about was just you know you've got these three persons and are they all equal um but no one no one in in the actual text was ever talking about that Right. Yeah. Now, someone might might say, well, but nevertheless, like that is, you know, for whatever reason, uh, I think, you know, I think it's important that the persons all sort of be equal and, and the monarchy of the father doesn't make them equal. But my my issue there is, I mean, show me in the Bible. I mean, I mean, if, if you if you're going to admit that, like the, the texts of the actual pro-Nicene church fathers don't talk about equality and they don't talk about subordination and all this stuff, right? Then uh, you're not you're not going to be arguing with me on the basis of tradition because it's just not there in the tradition. So it's got to be like a biblical argument. So what's the the biblical argument? But usually the argument isn't biblical. It's usually just um, it's usually based on something about this person's particular soteriology, right? So like they they have this maybe they have substitutionary atonement or something. They think that, you know, well, 
the way this works is it's a sacrifice, but the sacrifice has to be infinite because that's what St. Anselm said. <laughs> and I'm just, you know, and, and so they, they've got whatever theology is that's motivating that. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, I don't know what it, I mean, I don't know where you get out of the Bible that the sun isn't, I mean, I don't know. I just, I just want to hear what, you know, what's the, what's the argument from the Bible. The, the final thing that I would say is regardless of all of that too, is the, the sense in which the monarchy of the father is subordinationist is pretty thin anyway. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, the, on this view, at least, I mean, people, and people can argue, they can try to argue that it's incoherent or something, but I mean, the stated view of the church fathers is that the father and the son are homoousius. They are one in essence. They have the same nature. Uh, they have the same power. They have the same activities. <laughs> they, you know, uh, everything is exactly the same in, it, it, we should worship them. E they're equally objects of worship. They're, I mean, they're, they're equal in every other way. Right, it, except just for the fact that the father actually is the father, right? right? Like he's the—it's he, just father and son. Like that's the the only sense in which they're not equal is that one is the source and one is what comes from the source, which in the case of the Holy Spirit is is explicitly stated in Scripture. Right, that the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Right. I mean, I guess people will interpret that as just sort of he sent in, in a temporal sense or something but um but yeah. but in any case i'm just saying i mean the 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 sense in which it's subordinationist is it just seems to me like it's it's very thin and it's such that like if you i mean if you abandon that then i don't i don't I, I start to lose my handle on what even what even we're talking about when we say that there are three persons. I mean, they 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 would seem to be all identical. Yeah. And what so what is it that individuates them? Like in in virtue of what do they they count as three, right? Um, I mean, this is a little bit maybe. Um, uh, apologies to to layman because this may be a little technical but no, um, it's it's a great thing that it is technical because, yeah okay. yes of course we need to be it it needs to be digestible of course but at the same time we also need to uh build up each other like paul says yeah. in first uh, corinthians 8 verse 1 that knowledge puffs up and love builds up so for the yeah. love of, of our christian layman it's, yeah. it sounds hard but i know that for those i know a couple of friends already they, they are can't they're eager to watch this session. They're yeah, like good. they're like folks of 19 oh. years old. And when you see them on the street, like now those, those, those guys are not apologists. And all of a sudden yeah. they're speaking about philosophical points. I'm like, my goodness, yeah. man. So yeah. don't other, okay. don't well, underestimate well, uh, the audience. <laughs> a point then that I'll that I'll throw in here. This this is one of my issues with it. Um, if you put this into so in terms of modal logic, which Maybe sounds scary, but I'll just say very simply put, um, uh, it, it, modal logic is just a way of kind of dealing with what things are necessarily true and what things are possible and, and those sorts of questions. And so uh, 
we just would say another a way to think about when something is possible is to say there's some possible world which is where it's true which just means a uh, possible world just being kind of a total way that things could have been like a whole imaginary history of the universe you know that isn't contradictory or impossible so there's a possible world where i you know ate toast instead of eggs for breakfast or you know whatever uh and then in, if something is true in every possible world then it's necessarily true right so two plus two equals four that's true in all possible worlds well here's the issue right i mean god is supposed to be a necessary being so he exists in all possible worlds um, and one issue, so there's, there's an argument, the modal ontological argument that says, um, I mean, roughly the, the, a simplified sort of form of it is just, uh, if something's supposed to be a necessary being, it's supposed to exist in all possible worlds, right? If there's a possible world where something like that exists, then it exists in all possible worlds. Right. So think about it this way. So if there's a necessary being, right, if there's some possible world where there's a necessary being, well, a necessary being is one that exists in all possible worlds. So right. it exists in all possible worlds. And that's one argument for God's existence. But you can count atheists can counter that argument by saying, well, maybe God just doesn't exist in any possible world or there's a possible <laughs> world where God doesn't exist. So so there's ways to kind of counter that argument, but if you already believe in God in the first place, um, you kind of have to, I think, you have to at least admit that that's, uh, that that's a sound argument. I mean, even if it's not persuasive to atheists or whatever, you, you have to say, well, that's what God is like. So if the person, I mean, if a divine person in general is supposed to be a necessary being, then my issue with, with it is this. Um, it, if there's if there's three divine persons, right, then it it has to be impossible that there could be four. Right. And it has to be impossible that there could be five or six or any other, right? If it's possible for there to be 20 divine persons, then there there would be, right? So uh, if you say, okay, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no there's no intrinsic difference between them because they're of one essence and so forth, right? They're supposed to be intrinsically the same. Mm -hmm. If you, and that's fine. And that's consistent with pro-Nicene Trinitarianism, right? That's what the church fathers would say. Yeah. They've got the same intrinsic sorts of quality. But if you then also say like, there's not, they're not, there's not even any relation that makes them any different, right? There's not, it's not that one's like, the source and the others, the effect or, right. you know, yeah. uh, well then it, it, either there's only one divine person after all then, right. Or there's something that, that distinguishes them, right. Which it's not going to be an intrinsic property. And these egalitarian guys don't want it to be an extrinsic property either. Maybe unless well, we can come back to that, but, God forbid you just, and some people just do this. I think if I'm not mistaken, maybe I won't mention it by name. Anyway, there are, there are people who, who I think do this, that they just say, oh, well, you know, things just, they're just primitively individuated. No, no problem. Right. Like, like you can have two things of the same, 
I've got two water bottles here and they're just, you know, they're, they're just two, right? And there's no, there's no trick to it. There doesn't have to be any intrinsic difference or any relation. They're just, right, you can just have more. Well, if you can just have more, then you necessarily do have more, right? If it's, if there's a possible world, right, that, that principle, if you kind of flesh, flesh it out in terms of modal logic is that there's always a possible world where there's one more of these, this kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah, but yeah. if you say that, if you say there's always, there's always a possible world where there's one more of a thing that exists in every possible world, then what you end up with is there, there has to be infinitely many divine persons. Uh, and I don't, I don't see, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of fancy way to, to avoid that, but it seems to me like on the face of it, you get infinitely many part of that. That doesn't sound any yeah. better. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it seems to me like you you want to you want to individuate them with some relation anyway. And I so I said we'd come back to that. I guess some people do say, well, yeah, there's this begetting relation, and it's right. asymmetrical. So you know that that makes there be two divine persons, but um, it's not anything even like causation or grounding or anything like that uh my question then is okay so then what is it because uh it's not it's not a relation like being to the left of because god's not a physical thing and it's not a, a relation like being a subset or something like because they're not set i mean it's not and it's not that one existed before the other because there's no temporal, oh, right? Right. So if you've got these beings that are eternal and omnipresent, and you know, uh, what 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 is it? What what relation is there besides something like cause and effect? Right. Right. Which you have. I mean, we we agree that there's such a thing as cause and effect in this eternal uncreated realm because god creates the world right so yeah, I mean, you're right you are you've got cause and effect or or call it grounding if you don't want to call it like eternal causation call it grounding but uh i mean so i know what that is um but what's the what's the relation that's that's right. there right yeah. So, and also, I mean, if it if it's just like, well, there's just these random weird relations that don't, they're not causal and they're not, but they're not physical or anything like that, then um, all right, I mean, how, how many of these things are there? Are there are there 25 of these different relations? Then there's gonna be 25 different divine persons, I guess. I mean, what you know, so why do I get like what and, and what is begetting? Like, what is this father-son talk? in the bible right. yeah but we have um, to we have to also remind ourselves that the bible or god himself is, is using anthropocentric language like mm -hmm. words yeah. that, oh, that we human beings have a conception of that we have can make analogies from etc so as we as you mentioned before when we are discussing with atheists they are like like the the monists you know like we are just a bunch of cells and a bunch of nerves uh, flapping around nothing more mm -hmm. nothing less but then once they once they understand the column cosmological argument, the teleological argument, mm -hmm. the moral argument, then they're coming into our domain. From They're coming from mm -hmm. physics to metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, all these propositions 
like it's making sense in their mind when they're reading the Bible. Like, okay, this happens, and then that happens. What 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 are the implications of those things? Like, uh, as Christ, as as Paul says in Acts seventeen, like he uh, in him we move in ever being, and he is holding us in his hand. For instance, we have we, we can we can't go anywhere, <laughs> as as a figure of speech. But if you're coming back to uh, uh, the subordinationist thing, like uh, one analogy I really like to use is uh, the example of like First uh, Corinthians eleven verse three, for that the head of the woman is man, the head of man is Christ, and right. head of Christ yeah. is God. Just like see, there's a hierarchy. Yeah. But then I always say this, like okay, imagine this: my mother is a woman, but I'm mm-hmm. not the boss of her. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm the very least of a boss of my mom. Let, let that first be clear. In the same way, uh, the, the, there is, there, the, like, the, the, the father is the father and the son is the son, but you still have to obey the son as you obey the father. As, as on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father says, listen to him, listen to my son. Mm-hmm. Or uh, when uh, Christ says in John 5, verse 23, as you honor the Father, so thou shalt thy honor the son, etc. So there is no cutting away. Like you have like the, the monarchy of the Father and people are trying to cut away the son and the spirit and they're trying to make God the Father and just some monad mm-hmm. being. And I'm like, why are you doing this? If you, if you want to remain biblical, at least. Yeah. So anyway... Yeah. I, I had a, I feel if you wanted to something address uh, to that point or. Um, no, I think. Uh... That, 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 that's sealed the deal. I now a bit, a, a bit more difficult question, particularly on the will. Mm-hmm. So we, we believe as Trinitarians that there's one God with one will. So there was one objection, which was like, uh, do they have the same will because they have the same mission and they're working in, in, in to a particular goal or how does the will work right. within the Godhead? Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's probably hard to um, probably hard to wrap your head around it, but uh, the, the patristic doctrine uh, is, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one will in a much tighter sense than just like they have the same goals and they come to the same conclusions or something like that. It's like they literally have a single faculty uh, of willing, like a single power of willing. So um, this is a criticism that uh, my friend Scott Williams often makes about um social Trinitarianism is this, what he calls the necessary agreement problem, is that we, we certainly, everyone wants to say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit necessarily agree with each other. Like they can't, it would be impossible for them to come to different conclusions, right? Uh, and I think almost anyone would agree that, I mean, yeah, that, that would be tritheism, right? I mean, ha- that right. has to be tritheism. If you got three different people making three different decisions and warring against each other, like Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, right? That's, that's not good. That's not monotheism or uh, anything. So, so social Trinitarians will want to say, um, well, you know, they, they all, they have three different wills, you know, but they always will agree uh, and sometimes the argument is like, well, um, 
they're all omnibenevolent. And so they just would all agree. But then the question is like, well, what if God wants to make the grass? What if, what if the father wants to make the grass green and the son wants to make it blue and the Holy spirit wants to make the grass red because they have different favorite colors or something like that. Like that are non-moral issues, right. Just kind of aesthetic issues. Like what do you do? Do they take a vote? What happens if it was like that? It's just a tie. Um, and there's different ways that people, uh, Swinburne tries to do this by saying um, kind of like they would just agree ahead of time sort of that they're, it's best uh, if they come up with kind of a way, like a system to agree or something like that. But um, people have, have pointed out that um, there can be decision problems where there's no resolution, even if everyone is trying to agree. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the expression, a Canadian standoff, we, we call it, it's a, it's a joke in, in America because Canadians have this reputation for being super polite. So the, the Canadian standoff is like when you come to a door and you're like, you go, you go first. And the other person's like, no, 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 you go first. Oh, no, no, you go first. Oh, no, yeah, I insist, right? And so it's like, there's no conflict. No one's trying to, you know, be aggressive and get power over the other one, but there's still like no way to resolve the, the issue, right? There's no way to, to finalize the decision, even when people are cooperating. And sometimes because they're all cooperating, they have, so maybe the persons of the Trinity could have like a Canadian standoff because they're all trying to defer, you know, to the other one because they don't want to do anything, you know, they want to they prevent conflict. But the, the thing about it is that, that those questions never come up in in the patristic period and it's it's not because they're just dumb and didn't think about it it's because uh they're the the patristic view is that that's just not even an intelligible question like that's not a situation that even makes sense because there literally is only one will in in the sense of an actual faculty for willing right there's only a single power so if if it goes one way, I mean, that's, that is their decision, right? And if, if it goes the other way, that's them deciding the other way. So, uh, you know, where you have your own faculty of choosing and I have mine and we might just kind of try to coordinate because we have the same goals or something like that. Um, that's not how the Trinity is supposed to work, right? So they, they just have a single faculty of, of will. Right. And it's hard. It's hard for people to get their heads around that, I guess. And and partly. Um, the, the issue is that social Trinitarians like the analogy between three men, three people like so much. And they typically they are theistic personalists. So they think of God as a person without a body or something. And it's kind of like, well, um, and, and frankly, I mean, if you reject the monarchy of the father, then uh, it, it's, again, like sort of what makes these different, right? So they, they kind of want to ground the difference between the persons in a distinction between minds and wills and, and so forth. Um, the church fathers didn't think that way, though. They thought, they, they thought the distinction between the persons was in this sense of generating um, begetting. Uh, and they thought um, there's 
there's not anything to distinguish the will or the mind or whatever. So, um, so you end up with these, this kind of shared agency, right? There's only one, there's only one power of, they, and they would say it about everything actually. So everything, at least the, the Latin phrase is inseparable operations, odd extra meaning to the outside. So um, everything outside of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity all have kind of the same relation to, because it's all the same power that's uh, directed right. yeah. outside the, the Trinity. So, right. yeah. I remember that there's uh, in Second Chronicles chapter thirty verse twelve. It says that God shall give His people Israel a chad lep, like one mind. And of course, like there's this, there's the word echad again, like in in the, in the Shema. But then, in the same way, you're showing us that a plurality of persons are having like one goal exactly. But at the mm-hmm. same way, if that if you put that analogy towards the trinity of course it, it does it does confirm that it is one faculty it is one cognitive ability yeah. as in yeah. luke twenty two forty two, it says that uh, not my will but thy will be done like christ is implying himself that his will is his father's will but at the same time in john he says that uh, i will raise up on my own accord so he's also showing that uh, he is not like this energy of the father so there is this. Yeah, that's that's something to, to note too. That actually, it's a lot of what my dissertation was about was was about the sh- shared energy, which will is is one of the energies, and that's part of the issue. Is that yeah, there there are lots of actions that are attributed to the Father, but they're also attributed to the Son and also to the Holy Spirit. So resurrection is one of them. Like, right? Unitarians will always pick up on like you know. God raised Jesus from the dead, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, look, see, um, but it, but yeah, Jesus also says like, I have the power to lay down my life and I will take it up again. Um, and, and he, it says that he raised himself up from the dead. Um, and also that it's done by the Holy spirit. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's all these cases yeah. where all three of them have the same action attributed to them. Right. And that one, which goes back to our, our first discussion, which we were talking about the analogy of like those three folks who were trying to paint, having like this paint job. And I, right. was, I was very curious then on, on the concept of perichoresis, like the indwellings of the mm-hmm. persons and yeah. how they, how all of the persons were like partaking in salvation, creation, etc. And you gave this amazing analogy, which is yeah. like misused. Now I, I use it quite a lot of times where all three of the persons, because they indwell one each other, they're like holding the same pen and doing the same right. act, etc. Right. And so that analogy like fits amazing, especially yeah. if it comes to the will. So I have um, another question. I recently started reading the paper of uh, Joshua Sijiwari on the argument for love. When we say mm-hmm. that God is love, of course it is an attribute, but at the same time we also say that it is, it is God's essence. God's essence is love. Um, what, what would you, what are, what is your mind if it comes to using love as an argument for the Trinity? Oh gosh. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, let me see. Uh, I think you sent some of these questions to me and that was one that I, yeah, I was like, I don't know. No, no problem. No problem. Um, 
Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't think I've, uh, I've read most or a lot. Josh, Joshua Sidjuati puts out a lot of papers faster than right. I, yeah, write yeah. some faster. I, I didn't, I, I didn't ask this question um, thinking that you would already read it, but I, I knowing you, you, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I have read that. Uh, that one of his, but um, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's something that has been um, done. It's an idea that's that's been outlined in a lot of Western uh, theology about the Trinity. And I suppose, I mean, I don't really have anything against it. Um, um, but yeah, I don't, I guess I don't really know uh, yeah, what to I say about it? Yeah. I don't have any firm views on it. I mean, I know like Richard of Saint Victor has that argument, and Swinburne kind of reuses that. And um, I, I guess I would say, uh, I mean, I, there's there's got to be something to it. I mean, certainly uh, the persons of the Trinity have to love each other. <laughs> that seems obvious. So, um, uh, the extent to which you can. Uh, turn that into an argument for the Trinity. Um, I don't know. I still have I still have to read that paper in order to to like trying to flesh out what uh, Joshua is saying. And I know there's a biblical basis for it. And mm -hmm. intuitively speaking, like you know it's true in some level, <laughs> but you're mm -hmm. trying to to like flesh it out a bit in 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 a more philosophical way, which 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 was I was like curious, like what would Bo Branson think about this particular thing? But it's something to to look into. Yeah, I'll have to think. I hope God willing, I'll have uh, Joshua on as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I think that all the major questions we already addressed, and uh, a moment ago we alluded to, uh, of course, that uh, uh, the God in the Old Testament. Uh, mm -hmm. appeared as the sun yeah like that was yeah. the can of worms are you, are you into to open oh. the can of worms for a bit <laughs> sure yeah yeah um so my my view um is that that's that's probably the root of the doctrine of the trinity like if i was just kind of uh to, to come at things from a completely um just sort of historical perspective, like even from a secular point of view, I think I would say that's the, that's where you really get the doctrine of the Trinity from, I think, is, is the fact that in the Old Testament, there's this tension between, uh, on the one hand, it says, no one can see me and live. Uh, God tells Moses, no one can see me and live, uh, and you can't see my face. Um, but then immediately he says, uh, hey, you can see me. <laughs> I'll just put you <laughs> up to the rock and put my hand over you. But, and then you can see my back parts, but you can't see my face because then we'll see me live. But then later it's just like, yeah, God used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, right? And there's all kinds of theophanies in the Old Testament where people say they saw God and they, they think he's a man or something like that. And it's like, well they clearly see him in some sense and they, it seems that they see his face. Mm. Um, and so what's, what's going on with that? Uh, and as you, I guess, know, if you've been digging into the two powers in heaven stuff, you know, it, it was a um, common, you know, common idea in, in late second temple Judaism. There you go. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
that, you know, the, a way to deal with that is to say that there's these two Yahwehs, there's a visible Yahweh and an invisible Yahweh, or sometimes they would call him uh, Yahweh Hagadol, big Yahweh, and Yahweh Hakatan, right. exactly. Yahweh. lesser Yahweh, yeah. And yeah. just the, just the, just that language, right? Big Yahweh and little Yahweh sounds like father and son, you know what I mean? Like that's, it's kind of, Hey, there's Yahweh senior and Yahweh junior. And then you get to the new Testament. There's just all this talk about father and son. The interesting thing about it too, is that the, the new Testament says that no one can see God. Even, uh, I think I calculated this up and it's something like 20 times more frequent in the new, like if you figure like per word, like, you know, how, how big the old Testament is and how many times that gets stated and then how big the New Testament is in comparison, and it's being stated even more, is something like 20 times more frequent in the New Testament. Wow. That they, that they, I mean, it's just over and over and over. No one has ever seen God. No man has seen it. No one can see. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man living has ever seen nor can see. Uh, no one has seen the Father, Jesus says. You know, you've at no time seen him. It's just like over and over and over throughout the New Testament. And the interesting thing is that frequently at in the same verse or the following verse, it will say, and Jesus has revealed him or the son of God has revealed him. Right. right. So if you think, right, all of these, uh, I mean, so it's just a common view in, in late second temple Judaism, not necessarily the only view, but it was a, a not uncommon view that there's this angel uh, who comes and he has some sort of special thing going on. He has the same name as God, or he's like a representative of God. And like, and there's kind of debate about what this figure is. Um, as a matter of fact, Jewish yeah, yeah. This, this, yeah. all these books altogether all are speaking about on that yeah, particular wrestling all, between all written by Jews, all written by Jews. Like just a quick introduction, as yeah. you mentioned before, Alan F. Siegel, uh, the late Alan F. Siegel, uh, Lord Lessa. Uh, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, the the bodies of God in the ancient world of Israel of Benjamin D. Summer. Within two weeks, I will have a, a session with him. So hopefully, my next yeah. coming session will will be with him. And just uh, just for people to know. Uh, uh, Benjamin D. Sommer is an Orthodox Jew. He is grounded in his faith as much as it can be, and he says that Jews have no ground to stand upon if they're trying to refute the Trinity. Like mm -hmm. just, just, just to give a, a, an idea. And of course, uh, Daniel Boyren, Borderlines, same proposition. And the next one is is like one of is like the Godfather of Judaic uh, Kabbalistic research, Moshe Idel, Sonship. And he is using a term. And first of all, here's this like the 700 page uh, book. And mm -hmm. he is like uh, following down all these Jewish sects throughout the, throughout the centuries. And he is like sensing in them that they believing in this two divine powers. And there's the father and the son. This whole book is it's about the sonship of God. Yeah. And he was using this very interesting term. He's using the term intra dynamism. As yeah. we believe, intra-Trinitarian relationships. Right. You name right. it. So, the Trinity, the Trinity is thoroughly biblical. Just want yeah. to put that one out there. So, yeah, yeah, it's undeniable. 
Yeah, I think that's that's right, and it's uh, it's interesting that nowadays in scholarship, like it's it's even Jews who are kind of leading this is saying like, yeah, there was this whole strand in in ancient times uh, where that wasn't considered, you know, heretical, and it wasn't considered did not be monotheistic or anything like that. Um, and yeah, I think that's the issue. Is is uh, there's other issues too, but I mean, primarily it's this. Uh, issue with you can't see god uh, but yet people say that they see god all the time in the old testament so then the question is how does that work um my i have a little argument like a little kind of some notes that i wrote up online if you want i can see the link sure but, mm -hmm. um from a logical point of view there's there's only kind of three ways to resolve that right so if you say no one has ever seen God, there's a quantifier, no one, <laughs> there's a relation, seeing, and then there's a final term there, God, right, the object of seeing. Uh, no one has ever seen God, but then Isaiah says he saw God, and Moses saw God, and Ezekiel saw, so all these people see God. Well, there's one way to resolve that is to say that the, the quantifier is implicitly restricted so like if you say there's nothing in the fridge but there's oxygen and there's you know the leftover tuna fish that you don't really want to eat you know what i mean like yeah yeah but i mean like nothing good right so implicitly like i say no one but i really mean like no one of a certain sort another way to resolve it is to to say there's some kind of ambiguity or equivocation in the sense of seeing like there's a sense in which you can see God, but there's a sense in which you can't or something like right. that. Like, like for instance, I see your point. Right. Yeah. Like right. I see your yeah. point. Yeah. But or I perceiving. Yeah. Perceiving. Yeah. Right. And then the other way would be to say there's an equivocation on the term God. And that in some cases, the word God is referring to a certain person. And then in other cases, it's referring to a different person. I wonder right? which, I wonder which that person would be. <laughs> well the, here, here's the so here's how my argument about that worked is um you know look for how when the new testament talks about this what what does it do and as a control uh i've said uh look at the book of mormon so uh mormons have a view that um uh the the theophanies in the old testament are god the father uh, that's like their official theology right and they've got a whole new you know testament the book of mormon that's their you know their scripture whatever. so i i just have said well let's go to the book of mormon and see you know if you've got a if you've got some people who definitely we know believe that the old testament theophanies were the father then how is the how does the Book of Mormon talk about these verses that say you can't see God? And sure enough, what they do is in some cases they restrict the quantifier. So there are verses in the Book of Mormon that say no one who is sinful can see God. No one who doesn't have the grace of the Mormon priesthood yeah, has ever ad seen hoc God. rescue. <laughs> say what? Ad hoc rescue. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's one it's one way to make it consistent, right? So, um, but that but that's there in the Book of Mormon, right? Mm -hmm. And it's there a number of times. 
Uh, interestingly, it's never there in the New Testament, right? The New Testament never says no one who is sinful can see God or no one of a certain sort. In fact, the New Testament doubles down. It just says like, you know, no one has seen God at any time. Um, it says no one could possibly see God. Um, uh, in fact, there is one, there, there is a, a, a way of limiting the quantifier. There's one verse that says, um, no one has ever seen God except he who is from God. He has seen God, which in the context is referring to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So in the New Testament, the only limiting you get of that quantifier is just for Jesus, right? That's all it says. Mm -hmm. So that's not what you would expect if, if uh, the view was, well, so you some people can and some people can't. There's also stuff in the Book of Mormon about this distinction, like you can see God with your physical uh, or with your spiritual eyes, but not with your physical eyes. There's kind of a sense which you can, a sense in which you can't. You never hear that in the New Testament either, right? So in the New Testament, it's never, well, you know, some people can see God. No people of a certain sort can, but there are. And it's never, well, there's two different senses of seeing God. The only thing that's left is there's two different figures that are both being referred to in the old Testament as God. And what you get in the new Testament is they'll just double down on no one has ever seen God. Um, and then they'll say the son of God has revealed him. That's the person who, right. So the, the right. person who's getting called God in the old Testament when he's visible is the son. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was also uh, uh, there was someone who objected once. Who said, "Like, yeah, but wait a minute. In the book of Daniel, the Ancient of Days with long hair, etc., and the Son of Man, etc. Oh, yeah. yeah, but you still forget what what those verses in John one eighteen and John six forty six say. By the Son who revealed him. Also mm -hmm. in Matthew eleven twenty seven to twenty eight, you have to understand that the Son of Man was also there. So it logically it's coherent that if Jesus is there. And he's the one who's showing you the father. It, it, it's still, yeah, it still stands. Say, the, there's a whole, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff about Daniel seven. Um, mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole kind of debate about the ancient of days and how to, right. how to think of that. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, I know I talked to father Stephen the young about this and he's very, uh, the ancient of days is God, the father, because it's a, it, it, thing where they've they've ripped daniel kind of um takes this out of a scene from the Baal cycle where there's the god l and then the god Baal, and so the ancient of days looks like l and the son of man is like Baal, mm -hmm. uh and so that's two you know so it should be father and son um interestingly though well, i mean so you get this thing in the in the book of revelation where Jesus is portrayed is described as looking like the ancient of days is described in the, in right. Daniel. Also, there's a paper by, um, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Um, Bogdan. I don't even know how to, so it's, it's B U C U R I think. Um, and, uh, I, I, yeah. Is that how to pronounce it? You, you it, know better than it sounds. It sounds Turkish. Bogdan Buchus. Oh, maybe. Um, yeah. What's, what's but anyway, the... he, he has a he has a lot of good papers and stuff, but he has a paper uh, that's interesting because it turns out that in the Greek of 
Daniel. Uh, there's different versions of the Greek. Um, so, but one of them uh, translates Daniel as saying, um, and then um, the son of man came to the ancient of days, which is what the Hebrew says or the Aramaic is. Uh, but another, there's another version that says um, uh, the son of man came as the ancient of days. Um, and it's, and it describes the scene, like there's just some kind of slight differences of wording where it makes the scene sort of different, where it's this, the same figure is both the ancient of days and the son of man. Father Stephen doesn't like that, but the interesting thing is that when Jesus quotes that, when he's in front of Pilate, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, I think, there's, a, there's another difference in these two versions where one says coming on the clouds of heaven, and one says coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus quotes, I forget which is which, but Jesus quotes from the one that says uh, he came as the ancient of days. Right. So he quotes the with the clouds thing or on the clouds yeah. uh, from the one that that would say that the son of man is the ancient of days. Right. But ca can we say that that the word ancient of days should not be used as uh, as a, as a non-rigid designator for only God the father? Like ancient of days is, of I course, in that yeah, context I mean, used as a father, but can also yeah. use to the son, which I have no problem, which is like, yeah, for I mean, instance, yeah. Yeah. in Isaiah 9, yeah. 6, Christ is also called uh, the everlasting father or father of everlastingness, that he is in some sense like the, yeah. the, 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 the RK over eternity, which is logical, which you mm -hmm. don't exclude. So I yeah. have no problem affirming that he's as well as the, the ancient of days. Yeah. But, but and nonetheless... He is, and that's not something I'm an expert on, so I'm not going to sure. weigh in on that, the Ancient of Days controversy. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, but anyway, th th there's so much richness uh, of Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 2, 17, for Christ is the foreshadowing in the Old Testament. Like Paul went to went three years, yeah. three years to Arabia in order yeah. to relearn uh, and how he saw Christ throughout the Old Testament, which that, that which was Sam, Sam Shimon told me. Mm -hmm. It just, yeah, there's so much richness. Uh, Dr. Bo, uh, yeah, it, it has been a, such a delight. It was very enlightening. I got a lot of homework to do. I, I like written uh, a couple notes oh, yeah. down. A couple, uh, I got some homework to do. Good. Yeah. I'll keep you busy. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as soon as I have my uh, session with uh, Benjamin this summer, I'll send you the link via WhatsApp yeah, or yeah. by email. Yeah. Hopefully, that will, that will be a great session. For sure, well, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, at one point in time, I I was very close to converting to Judaism at one point in my in my life. So I Whoa. yeah, before I before I found out about Orthodox Christianity, actually, I was okay. Um, I was very interested in the Kabbalah and and all of that stuff, Jewish mysticism. So um, so yeah, I'm always fascinated to hear what um is is coming out of, of these scholars right yeah, yeah. no i think there's a, a lot of depth in 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 the, in the judaic exegesis of scripture mm -hmm. and there's this youtube channel called one for israel and mm -hmm. the way that they are like explicating uh biblical stuff is like my goodness man like yeah. we christians we we are not of course they like they're they're living in that culture so Anyway, a very interesting yeah. thing that you just yeah. said there. We should. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, at, at, I'll just 
to flesh that out, I mean, I grew yeah. up as a Protestant, as a Southern Baptist, and, and uh, I got interested. I, I decided I wanted to learn Hebrew when I was about 15 or something. So I uh, started, at a, I found a Messianic Jewish kind of group that taught Hebrew. Um, and, and yeah, I just got more and more interested in Judaism as kind of the background to the New Testament mm. and everything. And um, yeah, no, I mean, I was just I, I, at a certain period, I was very dissatisfied with the, the theology um, in the kind of the groups of people that I was around. And I thought it was kind of shallow and, and not really very informed by Judaism. Um, and yeah, at, at a certain point for that, that's a whole other uh, topic I get into. But I but I kind of considered it. And it was it was about that time that I I found a copy of the Philokalia. Right. Um, and, uh, I had been thinking like, uh, it, it's so clear, it was so clear to me that certain aspects of the Kabbalah were there in the new Testament kind of under the surface somehow. Uh, and I couldn't quite make out how, but I thought like, where did that go? Like what happened? It just got lost or what? Um, and then I came across a copy of the Philokalia and started reading it and I was like, that's it. <laughs> that's where this, that's where it went. Um, so that that was before I knew anything about church history or anything. That was kind of what got me interested in in learning more about the history right. of Christianity, yeah. history of theology. So yeah. Next next time, God willing, when we, when we meet each other again, we're going to talk about your conversion almost to Judaism and yeah. your and your music background. You once told me that you also oh, had yeah. like this background in music. Yeah, 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 but uh, that will be a subject subject for another time. Sure. Dr. Bo Branson, once again, it has been very fruitful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you from from the Thank business you. schedule that you have, uh, okay. with all the work that you have to do, uh, folks. Pray for this man. Uh, uh, I don't want to explicitly say it, but there's something amazing going to happen uh, in this man's life. Hopefully, I don't want to tell them that um, everything. Just, just to be sure that it's going to happen for him. And I wish you nothing but the best, all the health, all the love that the Lord has to offer you. And uh, thank, thank you very much. Thank you both. Thank you everybody for watching.